0: Uh, well, I'm, again, I'm very excited to be with you all tonight. And, and I believe that, that tonight has the power to lead to life change for us. Because, see, what I love about preaching is that, is that preaching is not just a string of words that have been put together and sound good. But preaching is powerful. And preaching is the vehicle that God uses to bring transformation in our lives. That there is no part, through the preaching of the word, that the Holy Spirit cannot change, cannot adjust, and cannot re. Orient. See, preaching is so potent. And so, my hope for us tonight is is that we come with the expectation that I, that you, that we are going to be transformed by the preaching of the Word of God. So, uh, without further ado, I don't want to waste any time. Can we just jump right into the scriptures? Is that okay? Is that cool? All right. Can we go to uh, the book of John, chapter one? I want to look at the first uh, four verses, or five verses, and then I want to jump down to verse 15. So, book of John, chapter one. And it reads this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was led him. And I love this next part. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skip down to verse 14. Put that one up there. I love this verse. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, in the word, me and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? We have seen his glory. Uh, I want to preach a message tonight entitled, uh, Welcome to the Neighborhood. If you're taking notes, the message tonight is, Welcome to the Neighborhood. Uh, I have before, when I've preached or done offering, I've talked about my car. Now, listen to this next sentence. It's very important. I had a very old car. Uh, Unfortunately, though, like Derek Jeter, it was retired this year. Uh, Ironically, my car started her career the same year that Derek Jeter started the MLB 20 years ago. But my car was forced into retirement because she had a career-ending injury. She broke her AC, Uh, a.k.a. there's no more air in my car, and it was going to cost more to fix that than the car is worth. Uh, And when it comes to cars, it is very obvious that not all cars are created equal. Some cars are faster, some are sleeker, some cars are bigger, some cars are safer. But not all cars are the same, and certain cars have a better foundation than others. I want to share with you uh, some of the worst cars ever made. Now, now listen, I want your participation. If you've ever owned one of these cars, or you own it right now, just make some noise, be proud. This is a safe place. No one's going to judge you. All right, can we put that first car up here? Ah, yes. Okay, I hear some clapping. It was, it was weak, but I still hear it. Uh, first up to bat, we have the Ford Pinto. Uh, this is a famous car in, in the 70s. And uh, the Pinto became known as one of the vehicles that um, it didn't discriminate when it came to exploding in accidents. (laughs) Whether you were going fast or going slow, when it came to an accident, it probably wasn't going to go well for you. Let's put up that next one. Ah. (laughs) Nobody? Uh, This is the uh, 1960s, the Peel Trident. I think it's a glorified version of like a Fisher-Price car. Uh, That little (laughs) little buggy that you put your kids in. Uh the, the incredible thing about this is that you somehow could like fit like two people in there. It's crazy. Uh moving forward to the eighties, you have the oh. No love? Okay. Uh what I love about this one is after about fifty thousand miles, the parts would start to just rattle off. And last but not least, we have the the smart car. Sometimes the smartest is not always the safest. Uh, this car is great if you want to be eco-friendly and also be pointed at. I've got a smart car. Uh, put up that second picture. <laughs> oh, that, that's just too funny. Can you imagine coming out at dinner and you're like... Uh, but it's also a great car if you want to go airborne at like 40 miles an hour. Not every car is built with what? A good foundation. And the reality of this is it extends way beyond cars and into our lives. Not everyone is building themselves up on the same foundation, and there is a foundation that is greater than any other foundation. And so here at Midweek at Meadowbrook, we've been in this season called Believe. And what Pastor wanted to do is he wanted to spend this year really thinking about and looking at what do we believe when it comes to God, because our whole faith is built on this, and what we want to do is we want to have a strong and firm foundation. And so tonight we're going to look at a very important uh, theological idea. In concept. It's called the incarnation. Incarnation. Uh, The word incarnation literally means in flesh. Uh, Theologically, this is the doctrine that that Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us as the divine God-man. Historically, the doctrine of the incarnation has been at the center of our faith. It has been the very thing that makes us who we are that Jesus became a man. A few days back, Pastor Tim uh, texted me this quote from Charles Spurgeon. you will put that quote up here. And here's what Charles Spurgeon said about the Incarnation. He said, the Incarnation is the foundation of Christianity. The Incarnation is the foundation of Christianity. So our lives are meant to be built on this truth, that Christ became a man. And so the question that I want us to kind of think about tonight is, what am I building my life on? And I think part of the answer we're going to find is found in the Incarnation. Uh, Right now, there is a wonderful couple uh, who I am doing uh, marriage counseling with. And uh, what I love about most couples when they're in this stage is that they're so full of expectation and anticipation. There is such excitement that goes into getting prepared to be married. Uh, My wife and I, when we got married a a couple years ago, um, neither one of us could sleep at all the night before. Because we were so filled with excitement of what that day might bring. And in the same way that a wedding is is full of of hope is the way that you and I are meant to encounter the Incarnation. We celebrate the Incarnation every December. But often it can get lost in the shuffle of gifts, parties, candy canes, Christmas trees. But what really at the center of Christmas is Christ's entrance into our world. Um, Throughout history, the, the church has called this season... Advent. Advent. Uh, The word Advent is actually a word from the uh, Greco-Roman period. And we actually, as Christians, we hijack that word from Roman culture. Because the way they used that word was when Caesar was coming to town, it was Advent. Caesar was here. The pseudo-savior was here. But the Christians took that word and said, no, the true king has arrived. And this is Advent. And so today we celebrate Advent two ways. We'll celebrate it at Christmas, remembering that Christ came. But we also have a forward view that Christ is coming again, that Christ is coming back. Uh, Verse 14, and we read this verse earlier, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, One translation, and I love this translation, it says this, it says, The Word, being Jesus, moved into our neighborhood. And when we encounter the Christmas season in a few months, it is meant to remind us that God became man that he left his heavenly home and he moved into our neighborhood. And there is no neighborhood that Jesus does not or will not inhabit. You see, the the promise of the incarnation is this. It doesn't matter if you live in the nicest neighborhood in Ocala or a rough area, Christ inhabits it all. It doesn't matter if you're perfect or if you're flawed, Christ inhabits it all. It doesn't matter if you're a saint or a sinner, Christ inhabits it all. And when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, he's not looking for our perfection. He is there to offer us redemption. Because Jesus came to redeem. He came to say, give me that sin, and I'll give you freedom. He said, give me that guilt, and I'll give you peace. When Christ moves into the neighborhood, he's not waiting for you to come over with some cookies and welcome him. He is there to throw a party for you. He is there to offer lasting forgiveness, true hope, and the promise of eternity. He doesn't want to rub you in your sin. He wants to rub your sin away. And this is the promise of the incarnation that Christ has left his home and he's moved into whose neighborhood? Our neighborhood. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious, glorious thing. How many of you, by a show of hands, uh, you have been in church for over five years? Been in church for over five years? Okay, very cool. Now, this is not a knock on those who are in church less than five years. Actually, you might be at an advantage over us. Who's been in church less than five years? Awesome. Waving proud, waving proud. Awesome. Very, very cool. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but your house has a scent. Good or bad, there is a unique scent to your house. Uh, We often have no idea that our house has a scent, though. Why? Because we've grown accustomed to it. We've been around it for so long, we have no idea. That's why if you go on vacation for a few weeks and you come home and you're like, and all of a sudden you're like, man, were there some elves living here? What's the deal? No, it's because you've been gone for so long that you now are no longer accustomed to what it smells like. And it's very evident. You ever go to someone else's house and it like, smells like they make vitamins or something? Come on. They're, those houses are out there. You got to let them know. You got to let them know. When I, was, uh, when I was younger, um, we used to go to a beach in California called Zuma Beach, and I never realized what a beautiful and amazing beach it was until moved here in, um, in high school. I went to go visit my dad, and I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, because suddenly Daytona does not look the same. Why? Because you grow accustomed to it. And in the same way for many of us, because we've heard about the humanity of Christ, because we hear year, year after year, after year, that God became man. It's easy for us to get to a place where we maybe lose our awareness. Maybe it becomes normal and we don't have a real awe over the fact that God became man. But what I want to submit to us tonight is that if, if, if we want to build our lives on this, then we need to reclaim the wonder of the Incarnation. Because the Incarnation is not something we have to wait till December. But every day, you and I can see and be in awe and marvel at this significant act that God became man. So I want to take us some, some time tonight, and I want us to look at the implications of the incarnation. Um, at the beginning of tonight, we read the first two verses. you want going to put those back up there of John. first two verses of John, and they say, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. And so the word personified is Jesus. Now let's, let's take a moment and think about um, this as we look at the incarnation and the birth of Christ. Um, Jesus, at this point, has lived in all eternity with God. Now normally when we think about eternity, we think about eternity going forward, going on in the future forever. But eternity also goes back forever, meaning there was no time that God did not exist God doesn't have a a starting point. There has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So Jesus, this means he's always existed. Like he didn't just poof appear in the New Testament as a six-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus. So before he became a man, he was in eternity. And now get this next part. In eternity, he possessed all the characteristics of being God. He was all-powerful. He could do whatever he wanted to do. He was not limited by by space, by gravity, by anything. Now, can you imagine having no limitations and then taking all limitations upon yourself? In eternity, he was all-knowing. There's nothing he didn't know. There was no math problem he couldn't solve. That'd be wonderful. There's no subject he didn't know in detail. But then can you imagine becoming a, a baby and having to learn how to communicate and speak for the very first time? For all eternity, he had perfect community within the Trinity. The Trinity defines for us what perfect community is. God is a small group in himself. And can you imagine being being plucked from that perfect community and placed into a broken world? You see, when when Jesus becomes a man and enters our world, he, he knows what he's going to lay down. He knew the sacrifice that he Would make. He wasn't confused about that. He wasn't swindled. He fully understood, but yet he says, I see them, and I see him, and I see her, and it is worth laying those things down and becoming a man. And he doesn't come as a superhuman. He's not Jesus Clark Kent. There's no cape involved. He's not super baby Jesus. But he came as an ordinary baby. In fact, Isaiah even tells us that he had no majesty. He had no beauty to attract us to him. So he wasn't even a pretty baby. There's no no halo around his head. He's an ordinary baby. And so I want to take some time and answer some common questions, maybe some misconceptions, when it comes to the idea of Jesus' birth and his incarnation. The first one that often comes up is this. Uh, Why did Jesus' mom need to be a virgin? Like, even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard that. uh, Jesus' mom was a virgin, the Virgin Mary. But before we answer that question, we need to answer another question, and, and it's, why did Jesus come as a baby at all? Like, why not just fall down from the sky as a fully developed man? That seems like that'd be a lot easier to do. But I think it's a good question. I think it's an important question that we understand why Jesus came the way he did. Because before we can understand Jesus the man, we have to first understand Jesus the baby. So where does this idea start? Well, it doesn't start um, in the New Testament with his birth. But it actually goes back to the Old Testament. The very first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we find that man sins against God. And because of man's disobedience, sin enters the world. And now there is this chasm between God and man. But I love this. God, from the very beginning, he's full of grace. And by Genesis 3, just three chapters in, God gives us the first gospel. Uh, The first gospel, Genesis 3.15, is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. Now, we're going to do something. It's going to be kind of fun. Um, That way, when Pastor Tim asks you, what did you learn on Wednesday, you're going to say, I learned about the Proto-Evangelium. Or tomorrow, you're like at work and your friend's like, yeah, I was watching reruns of Friends. What did you do? I learned about the Proto-Evangelium. So we're going to say this word together, new word to the vocabulary. I'm going to give it Proto-Evangelium. You guys ready? You feeling up to it? Ready, set, one, two, three. Proto-Evangelium. Ooh, that was good. One more time. Proto-evangelium. Awesome. You can totally bust that out. Just try to, if you go to Cracker Barrel tonight, try to sneak that in when you order your your pancakes or something. (laughs) So, proto-evangelium. Very first gospel. Fancy way of saying first gospel. Genesis 3.15. We can put that up on the slide. It says this. It says, I, this is God, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise See, what God is pointing to here is that someday His Son, our Savior, will crush the serpent, the serpent being Satan. And so who's the offspring? It's Jesus. And as we walk through the Old Testament, the books of history, the poetic books, the, the books of the prophet, they all point to one thing, Jesus. And we find in the, in the book of, of Isaiah, in the seventh chapter, it says that therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name a And And these, these words were penned 700 years before Jesus comes. And so from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, God is declaring that someday his son will come, born of a man, and free the world. So why a virgin? Well, if she isn't, why mention it in the Bible? Like a woman has a baby. It's not going to make the evening news. Like, none of you are going to go home and hear Brian Williams say, uh, Breaking news, a lady has a baby. More on this to follow. That's not going to happen. But, but, but a virgin has a baby, that's a big deal. Like, that's on the front of People Magazine next to the Kardashians and whatever the British baby's name is. Like, that <laughs> matters. And so the first reason that he's born of a virgin is to show that this is not the work of man. Man didn't conjure this up. Man didn't create this. This is not man's idea. This is fully God. And and here's why this is so important. No other religion can claim this. The second reason, it's a little more theological, please go with me on this. When we're born, we're born into sin. When our first father, Adam, sinned, sin entered the world, rebellion entered into our hearts. So when we're born, we're born sinful, we're born vessels of wrath until we come to our Savior, Jesus, who bore that wrath for us. But Christ, being born a virgin, is not born into sin. He's not born the way we are, and that changes everything. He's not born sinful. He is born perfect. And he's now able to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And so Jesus, this is just always boggles my mind. Jesus grows up with earthly parents. Can you imagine being Mary? And you go downstairs one day to make a cup of coffee, and there's an angel of the Lord that greets you? hey, Mary, Uh, big news, don't be frightened that I'm a gigantic angel, but you're going to have a baby. It's going to be God. (laughs) Like, if you were Mary, you'd probably uh, freak out. Um, Of course you would. And imagine, fellas, you're, you're Joseph. You're Joseph. You're the one who's going to marry Mary. And you love her. She's a woman of character, has cute little dimples and beautiful eyes. And she comes up to you and says, hey, Joe. we're expecting. Now, we can be honest, sometimes as guys, be a little thick, like a package, like UPS, are they coming? Package? Uh, no, not a package. A stork is bringing something uh, and BTW is going to be the son of God. You'd freak out <laughs> because your virgin girlfriend, if you never kiss, is pregnant. I don't think it works exactly like that. And so Joseph, at this point, he has some choices, right? He can divorce her. He can leave her. But instead, an angel appears to him, and in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, the angel says this. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus means God saves. So here Joseph is. He is a normal guy, and God asked him to do an extraordinary thing. Joseph was a carpenter. He took a hammer and a lunchbox to work every single day. But you know what God reveals through Joseph? Is that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people like you and I. Which I think really begs the question, what kind of extraordinary thing does God want to do through you? And so Mary and Joseph, they're just normal people who are given this extraordinary task. And maybe some of you grew up in a Catholic church or maybe more of an Orthodox church. Now, I love Catholic and Orthodox church, and they get a lot of things right, but they get a couple of big things wrong. And one of those is Mary. Mary is just a girl. There's nothing supernatural about her. She is just the vessel who bore the Son of God. And we get into a, a dangerous place when we try to make her an icon or, or a deity or, or some sort of angel. She's not. She's a, a woman and that is it. And she's a, a normal woman and shouldn't be worshipped. She's married to Joseph, and uh, multiple times it lists that um, she had other kids, other children. Can you imagine, take a step back, being Jesus' brother? Mom, he hit me. He's God. I don't think he hit you. <laughs> like you're sleeping in the, in the bunk above Jesus. Jesus. But it's crazy to think about that Jesus was once a boy. Uh, Luke 2, verse uh, 40 says this. It says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now notice two things about his growth. It says he grows in two ways. The first is he became strong, meaning his physical body. And the second is that he grew in the wisdom of his mind. So let's take a look at Jesus as he grows up. Just like you and I, he would have gone through the same awkward stages. He would have experienced growing pains. He would have probably had acne at some point. His voice would have cracked. He would have got peach fuzz on his upper lip. But seriously, everything a child goes through, Jesus experienced and went through. And yet we often sanitize Jesus to being a barely human person. We often overemphasize his divinity. Now, he he was God. He is God. He is divine. But he's also fully human. Not partially human. Not even half human. But fully human. And so the struggles that every teenager boy goes through, that every man goes through, he would have gone through as well. The desires that every teenage boy has to face, he would have faced. He had the same impulses. Now let's be clear. He never sinned. But he was still tempted. Hebrews 4.15, it says that in every respect, not certain respects, Not the really bad respects. It says in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I know this can be hard for us to grasp, but I want to submit to you, if you can grab a hold of this, it'll change the way you experience spiritual growth. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. This means that there's nothing we've been tempted into, you've been tempted, or I've been tempted, that he didn't face. And when we understand Jesus was tempted just like you and I, we can realize that, man, God can relate to me. He knows me. Because God knows what it's like. God knows our deepest, darkest secrets. And you know what he says? I still want you. And Jesus is still moving into your neighborhood. Because he knows what it's like. And so Jesus, he starts off as a little baby like you and I. He would have cried. Would have gotten hungry. He would have had to be changed. Probably had a diapers really quickly, but... He would have, as a toddler, learned how to walk. Probably on water. No, I'm just joking. I don't know. That's possible. (laughs) But not only physically, he would have grown emotionally and spiritually. He had to read the Bible just like you do and I do. He didn't come out of the womb quoting the book of Isaiah like he had to study. He had to learn. He had to grow in those things. Jesus would have, I love this, Jesus would have looked forward to his birthday. He would have played games with his brothers and sisters. Imagine playing hide and go seek with Jesus. You're behind the baptismal. He, he would have had friends growing up. He probably at some point was, was bullied. He would have done chores. In fact, something that's really interesting about his life is that his ministry doesn't start for 30 years. So the, the first 30 years of his life, there's not really any ministry. And for 15 years, he was a blue-collar worker, which I think shows us that ordinary things matter, that whatever work we do matters regardless of what it is. Jesus would have felt hunger like us. He would have gotten thirsty. There would have been things that he liked to eat, things that he didn't like to eat, probably some vegetables. My guess is broccoli because broccoli is Satan's vegetable. I can't theologically prove that, but I think it's in the book of first opinions. Um, But the Bible also says he didn't know everything. He had to learn. He had to grow. He would ask questions. Hey, why is that the way that is? What happened there? And just like you and I, he would have experienced stress. And he had a full range of emotions. He wasn't a robot. He had compassion. There are times where he's sad. There are times where he's full of joy. There's times that he's thoughtful. There are times where he's energetic. He laughed. He told jokes. I love often when he's joking in the gospels, his disciples don't get it. And I think sometimes I don't get it. You know, sometimes we can be so serious that we kind of pass over the humor that Christ has in the New Testament. I'm reminded of a story that a pastor told. His name was Elton Trueblood. If your last name is Trueblood, ain't nobody messing with you.
1: <laughs> but his name was
0: Elton, Elton Trueblood. And he tells a story about uh, reading the Bible to his seven-year-old son. And so he's reading the Bible to his son, and uh, his son starts to crack up and laugh. And he's just like, what's he laughing for? This is a serious word of the scripture. But he starts to laugh, and he's just trying to push on through. And finally the father just stopped, and he's like, Why are you laughing? This is a very serious reading of the scripture. And the boy responded, because the passage is funny. See, the passage he was reading was uh, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And in the passage, it talks about how Jesus says, don't judge your neighbor when he has a speck in his eye and you have a log in your own. See, Jesus is making a point through a hyperbole. He's exaggerating. But for most of us, myself included, there are passages like that that I've read over hundreds of times. And maybe I didn't really notice the humor that was present. And I think time would fail us if we wanted to go through all the example, examples of Christ's humor in the Bible. But it props up frequently. And Trueblood, Blood, he ended up writing a book called The Humor of Christ. And in the book he said this. He said, anyone who reads the Gospels with freedom might be expected to see that Christ laughed. And that he expected others to laugh. But sometimes we're, show, we're so sure that he was always deadly serious. That we often mold his words to conform to our preconceived mold. And what he hits on is so huge. Jesus was full of life. He was full of joy. He was full of laughter. I think that laughter is far more spiritual than we give it credit. And so Jesus, he's he's fully human in every way that we are. The difference being that he never sinned. And so what we have witness to in the gospel is this beautiful thing where Christ became flesh. And he moves into our neighborhood. That Jesus gave up his heavenly throne for an earthly manger. And the thing that astonishes me more than anything else is that this isn't a temporary thing for Jesus. Like when he became a man, his humanity is not like a cheap suit that he just took off when he was done. But Jesus became and remained a human forever. Yes, he is still God today, but he is also still man. And so when the Bible says that Christ relates to us, it's not simply referring to when he was back on earth. It's referring to right now, In this moment, in our present situation, that even in this moment, Hebrews says, Christ relates to us as our older brother. That yes, he is our Lord. Yes, he is our Savior. But he is also the perfect man who didn't cast aside humanity in his ascension into heaven, but he continues in it today. Because Jesus humbled himself because he chose, he wanted to identify with us. And so God is born to a virgin teenager, into a barn. And God chose to have his son born into a staple on purpose. It wasn't an accident that there were no rooms left in the inn. God didn't forget to check hotels.com. He was fully aware, and here's why. He wanted Christ to be laid in filthy slop so that we could know, no matter how sinful our hearts may be, there is no place too lowly for Jesus to occupy He's not worshipped first by kings, but by homeless shepherds. And this is so that we know that Christ didn't just come for the privileged. He came for everybody. And Jesus, as a a young boy, he smuggled out of his country because the king wanted to kill all the babies. And this is to realize that when we feel rejected, Christ was rejected first. And there will come a time when all rejection, all fear, all angst is cast aside. He's raised as a child in a foreign land with no money. And this is to remind us that our current state is not the final state. And Christ is returning again. And so Jesus, he, he comes to earth and he humbles himself and became a man for one purpose. So that he could spend eternity with you. See, Jesus' humanity reminds us that God can sympathize with us in every single way. That we serve a God who knows what it's like to struggle as a human being. And we serve a God who decided to keep his humanity for all eternity. And he now looks at us and says, you were worth it. You were worth it. You were worth it. You were worth it over and over and over again. You were worth it. That is the echo of the incarnation. And for us, we're always looking for, for the one. We're always looking for that one thing that will bring us joy, that will bring us peace, that will bring us wholeness. And that one thing that we're looking for is not a thing at all. It is a person, and his name is Jesus. And he has moved into our neighborhood. He comes to where we are at. He does not wait for us to come to him. He runs and says, welcome to the neighborhood. See, Christ is not waiting for us to get ourselves together. He's not waiting for us to tidy up the house that is our soul. He's not waiting for us to do better or to sin less. Instead, he moves into the neighborhood. He knocks on the door and says, Can I offer you forgiveness? Can I offer you unconditional love? Can I offer you grace? Can I throw you a party and welcome you to my family? So what are we building our lives on? So many things we can choose, be it careers, be it our personalities, be it our humor, be it money. But there's only one perfect foundation. His name is Jesus. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's here to throw us a party. And his desire is that we would build our lives on the wonder of the incarnation. That God became man so that man could have a renewed relationship with God. Do you all get anything out of this tonight?